excited about what we're teaching through the book of Romans, and I'll tell you why. Not only because it's the Bible, it's the inspired word of God, but I'm excited because it's bringing clear doctrine to us. Because if there's one thing we need today, we need clear doctrine. We're not always exactly right on it. Nobody's God in the house today. But one thing about doctrine, and it will keep you when your feelings go out the window. Proper doctrine will solidify your walk with God when everything else seems to be falling apart. That's why it's important that we, we understand songs like we just sang that God is good. You know, it's proper doctrine to know that God is good because it's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance, not the antics of men, not the cruelty of a God that people don't know. But the goodness of God draws people to himself. And so we've been studying through this book of Romans. We're in the 10th week now. We're going to go 16 weeks with this series. And in chapter 1 through 4, we've talked clearly about the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And then in chapters uh, 5 through 8, we've talked about how God creates a new generation. Everybody that comes to Christ that's born again of his spirit, they're a brand new creation. And so we we learned that. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we're going to see God's promises fulfilled. Now today, in Romans chapter 9, no doubt one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible, because it deals with a subject that I'm not sure we like to embrace, but we are going to embrace it. And we're going to try to wrestle it down today. And that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Now, we don't know a lot about sovereignty in America, except that we like to have our own sovereignty. We like to be a sovereign nation. We like what we want, when we want, how we want it, from who we want it, for as long as we want it. And if we don't want it, we don't take it. We don't embrace it. We're that way. We're Americans. They say, I was right. I'm just saying that's who we are, and that's the way we were raised up. But I, I wanted to put a definition of the sovereignty of God on the, on the screens for you, and I want to read it here as it's there. You might want to take a picture of it uh, and study it a little bit more. But sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. Sovereignty is an attribute of God based upon the premise that God, as the creator of heaven and earth, has absolute right, come on, absolute right and full authority to do or allow whatever he desires. To kind of bring that a little bit closer, he does what he wants, with who he wants, how he wants, to who he wants, for as long as he wants. That's the God we serve. Aren't you glad that he's a good God? <laughs> you, you understand? You need to put those two together, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. And so, you, you know, there are different interpretations of, of the book of Romans and the, especially this ninth chapter and a little bit further in. And, and the thing about it is, is that what we tend to do many times is we tend to find a tribe that believes like we believe. In other words, we look at a truth and we say, okay, this is the way it is and, and there's no other way. And so once we find that tribe, then we feel like we have to defend that tribe. And, and because we know that we have the, all of the truth and so we're the ones, so we've got to, anybody who says anything against that, you know, we, we like take out the theological sword and we just kind of cut them to ribbons. 
But I found this, I found that, uh, as my pastor used to teach me, he said, Van, especially in ministry, when, when you start drawing circles to exclude people who are not believing exactly like you believe, he said, every time you draw a circle, there are less people in it until finally you draw the last circle and you're the only one in it. And so that was a valuable lesson to me as I began to study the scriptures and realize that there's a lot of different viewpoints. It's sort of like if we put a giant diamond in the center of this room, you know, diamonds have different facets. And so depending on which direction you're, what vantage point you are in the room would dictate what it looks like to you. It might look a little bit different to one, a little bit different to another. I have found this, and, uh, and, and I tell Jan this a lot because, you know, we've been married 48 years, and so we, you know, we've had enough time to realize that we're different. And uh, <laughs> it took us 47 years to know. No, we realize that we're different, and, uh, but, but I have a little saying. I say different is not wrong because we feel like different is wrong. You're guilty of that. I know you are because, you know, you get your little thing and, man, you know, whether it's, whether it's about uh, things or politics, whatever, you know, I got my, yeah, and you got it just right and you know it all and everybody's wrong because they're different, but really and truly different is not wrong. And so we're going to see some clarity in this. We may not find all the solutions. You may not, you, you may walk away from here today with more questions than you came you understand? You might, you might do that, uh, and that's okay, because we, we got to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing in chapter 9 talks about the sovereignty of God, and so, and not only that, but starting tonight in our small groups all this week, we're going to discuss this thing of trusting in the sovereignty of God, and you'll be able to flesh that out a little bit more. Think about Paul as he writes, and we're going to get ready to read some scripture that he writes in chapter 9. He really wants to show his heart for the, for the people of God, the, the, the Israelites, his countrymen. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, he said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, or the Jewish people. He said, I, I would be, if I could be cut off and they could be saved, I would do that. That's, that's powerful. Uh, I guess he meant it. I don't know if I could say that, but he said it. And so they, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those patriarchs you read in the beginning of the Bible. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He like preached a little message right there and he said, this is the way it is. I would be accursed if, I, if they could be saved because everything was given to them. And we've studied that and we've taught you about that in earlier chapters. And he said, furthermore, out of the Israeli, out of the Jewish community came the Christ who is God, who's blessed forever, amen. And then he goes on in verse six, but it is not as though the word of God had failed for not all who are descendants from Israel, from that nation who he just was speaking about, not all those belong to Israel or the true Jewish people, those who are people of faith. And you know in this book that Paul is writing and he's, he's helping the church at Rome to merge together the Jewish believers in Christ and the Gentile believers in Christ. And he's trying to get people to understand that 
out of both those people groups comes a new people group called Christians, called believers, called people of faith. And so he says here in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his natural offspring or, or that, that came from him. But through Isaac shall your, off, your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now he's talking again, I need you to understand, he's talking about true Israel, meaning those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He said, just because you were born in the bloodline of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean that you're true Israel. Let's, let's bring it home. Just because your mama and daddy are serving Jesus doesn't mean that you're serving Jesus. Just because grandpa had great faith and moved mountains in the name of Jesus doesn't mean you have faith in Jesus. You must sooner or later have your personal faith in the blood of Jesus, in the sacrifice of Christ. You must personally believe. That makes sense to you? Can't borrow faith from anybody. And then he goes on and he speaks. He says, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. We, we taught that in chapter 4. The angels came. They, 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 they were in the, the residence of Abraham and Sarah. And the angel said, in a year I'm coming back and you're going to have a child. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were old people. They did not have a child. But God had given them a promise that they would be, that, that they would be the father and mother of many nations. But yet here they are old with no kids. And so the angel comes and, she, and the angel says to her, you're going to have a baby. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, Isaac is the son of, of Sarah and Abraham. He is the child of the promise. And now he marries a woman named Rebecca. So Rebecca is up in here. And this is what it says. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So you say, what's that all about? Well, this is what it's all about. Isaac is the child of the promise. He's married to Rebecca. She gets pregnant. She's got twins inside of her. And before they were ever born, before they did anything good or bad, before anything at all, while they were still in their mother's womb, God speaks and says, the younger will rule over the older. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about God saying, Jacob I have loved or preferred, and Esau I have hated, or, or I've really, what, what we're really saying is that I've discriminated against. What would make God choose the younger to rule over the older because in the custom, the firstborn child, the older always had the rights, the birthright, all those things. But here is God seemingly changing it up. But guess what? God can change whatever he wants to change. Can you say amen to that? You ought to because he may do that in your life many, 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 many times. You see, so many times we think God's going to work a certain way. We just say he's got to work this way. He can work no other way. And I'm the oldest, and so I get it, and it's mine. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, we want to question God and say, what's up with that, God? You don't know what you're doing. 
Jacob was the boss, basically. And that's the way it went. I love that that was God's decision to do it that way. Then in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part that he would choose one over another? Is God unjust in doing that? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In essence, God's saying, I am sovereign. When he talks about Moses, he's talking about the book of Exodus, and we're going to read in just a second that God is able to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He's saying, I am sovereign. It is me. I choose. You know, God is the one. God gives promotion. Come on now. We think sometimes, you know, this person, that brother, but God gives promotion. And, and, and watch this. God will give some things to some people that he does not give to other people. He will gift certain people in certain ways and other people he will not. Isn't it amazing? You, you know our problem in the church nowadays? We think everybody's got everything from everything and I can do everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I cannot. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. <laughs> I had a friend of mine say, if God wants me to be a brain surgeon, I'll be a brain surgeon. I said, well, if he does, Remind me never to allow you to operate on my brain, please, even if I'm unconscious. Just no, not him. Don't let him operate on me. Then he goes on in verse 16. If that's the case, if, if, if he has compassion on whom he has compassion and if, if he cares about what he cares about, he says, then it depends not on human will or exertion, very important here, but on God who has mercy. It's not a matter of what you do or what you don't do, or, or, or especially in the area of salvation. It's like, I'm going to be good. That doesn't count. I'm going to go to church. That doesn't count. I read my Bible every day, and I'm going to pray. That doesn't count. I'm going to give my money to the poor. That doesn't count. It's not about human will. It's not about exertion. It's about God having mercy on us. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, this is in the book of Exodus. Remember, Moses goes to, um, he goes to Egypt and he says, let my people go because the children of Israel had been in bondage 400 years in Egypt, which by the way, he told Abraham that when he gave him you know, the covenant. He said they're going to go into bondage for 400 years. How many of you know that God knows the future and he knows the exact future? So they're, they're in 400 years of bondage, and, and Moses is going there and saying, let my people go. And so Pharaoh, this is what God said to Pharaoh. He said this to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what he told Pharaoh. And you, you, you know, if you've ever watched Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you know that he kept resisting, resisting, resisting until finally God sent the death angel and broke the back of Egypt. And then Pharaoh let the people go. But then you know he eventually chased back after them. And that's when God destroyed the armies of Egypt by a powerful opening and closing of the Red Sea. So then he has mercy on whoever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is where God is. This is what God is doing. 
So Paul goes into this thing where he's asking rhetorical questions. And you know what a rhetorical question is. It's asking a question for an effect, not really wanting an answer. It's almost asking a question and then you answer it yourself. For discussion, for thought, to, to, to get us to thinking. And in verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he, why does God still find fault in people for who can resist his will? Now, this is where it gets really, really wild, folks. I want you to think with me for just a moment. If God wills something, will it happen? And if God doesn't will something to happen, will it not happen? These are hard questions. What part do we play in it or is God in full control of what goes on? What happens when something is transpiring in my life and I pray about it, but yet God doesn't answer my prayer and keeps it going in my life? You see, I guess quiet because we think differently. In a little while, we're going we're to share what that means. But, but Paul's saying here, how can you find fault? I mean, if we're not responsible, if God's running the whole show, where, where do we fall in this thing? And some would think that we're almost like robots, which we're not, by the way. He's given us free will. Then he goes on in verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Nobody wants to answer that, you know? Will what, the, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a vessel of dishonorable use. If I'm going to be on the potter's wheel, I don't want to be a terracotta clay pot for outdoor use. <laughs> you know, straight V-shaped with a little hole in the bottom. Got them at my house. They're so nasty. Mold grows on them during the wintertime. You know what I'm talking about. I want to be a vase in the living room. <laughs> Shiny, fired, glossy, in a prominent location in the foyer. <laughs> and I would like to have fresh flowers every day. That's what you want to be. You want to be a vase. I know you. You know why I know you? Because I know me. But who, who would in their right mind would think that they can be in the potter's hand, a lump of clay, and, and, and tell the potter what to make them? I've watched enough pottery. They put clay on a wheel, they turn it, and then the potter takes his or her hands and and just does all kind of crazy stuff. You don't know what they stick their hand way down like in the throat of that thing and, and then and then sometime when they don't like the way it looks, what do they do? They smash it down and start over. And once it's made if they don't like it, they'll just throw it on the, on, the, on the trash pile because clay is cheap. God is molding people. God is sovereign in my life. I am today where I am right now because God said, this is where you're going to be. And if you don't believe that, well, let me put it this way. Let me just keep reading. Verse 22. What if, 
Now here it is. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory? Even us whom he has called, not for the Jew only, but also for the Gentile. In other words, what if God's got everything in hand and he knows what he's doing and he's got certain people in certain areas for a certain purpose and then another group of people for certain areas for certain purpose? What if that is the way that God operates? That's what Paul is saying. And and the situation is, if we can't embrace that, If we can't embrace our God who is sovereign, then maybe we're not serving the right God. Maybe we're manufacturing our own God in the image that we want. In other words, creating our God after our image and after our likeness, and I believe the Bible calls that idolatry. I don't know if I can instruct God. How about you? I'm not sure that I can tell God what to do. And the tough reality is this, is that you, if this is what you're doing, you may not be following the right God. Because you know how it is. God's going to bless you, bless you, bless you. And it's all great. You wonderful. You're going to be elevated. Today's your day, your best life ever. It's going to be great. Today's going to be bigger and better than tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to blow your mind. God's going to just bless you so much. But then I read in the Bible where Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted and run down for my namesake. Put that on your refrigerator. <laughs> Quote that every day. Speak that into existence. God, I want to thank you for blessing me with many enemies that I can pray for. (laughs) What if these things are true? Could I serve a God who would do that? Am I willing to serve a sovereign God? Where am I in this? Now, the thing about it is, folks, listen. The church, this church, I can only speak for this church. I can't speak for any other church at all in the whole world. 335,000 churches in America alone. In this church, it's got to be a safe place to ask your questions and to work through your doubts and your fears. It's got to be that way. You'll never get from the leadership of this church, oh, well, you just need to whatever, you know, I can't believe you. No, no, you got doubts, you got fears. We need to work through those things. That's one reason we have small groups. I lead a small group, and I love to watch how it operates, how the body operates to help people work through hard patches in their life. It's so wonderful. If you're not in a small group, join one today. Get in there and see the dynamics of the body of Christ, how it works. And so, you know, Paul is just testing the submission. He's testing our submission here. The book of Romans is testing our submission to see if we're going to trust God, if we're going to be like Job. Job is a righteous man in the Bible. God says he's a righteous man. The Lord is talking to the devil, believe it or not. And the devil said, what, what's going on? He said, well, have you thought about Job, my servant? And the devil says, ah, I don't know. God says, well, he's righteous. And, and then the devil says, well, you know, if, if I just touch him a little bit, if he loses something, he'll not serve you. So he said, well, go ahead and touch whatever you want. Just don't touch him. So all of his family died in one day. That's blessed. All of his possessions, all of his servants, they all died. Everybody died. One of them came back and everybody's dead. That's blessed. I'm a righteous man. I'm blessed. 
And then the devil comes back and says, well, you know what? He, if you let me just touch him, if I, if I get his life. He said, well, look, make him sick, but, but don't kill him. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, for you theologians. <laughs> and, and, and so the devil touches him, and, you know, he's got sores all over. His wife's against him, telling him to just forget God, curse God, just die, be done with this thing. I'm tired of looking at your ugly face. He, his friends come to him, three friends come, tell him all kind of crazy stuff. And then he says all kind of crazy stuff. And then finally God stands up and says, Job, I want you to stand up. Stand up, Job, and let me talk to you like a man. Let me question you. You've been questioning me. Let me question you. And then he says things like, where were you when I, when I formed the worlds? I mean, let's get real. Where were you when God formed the world? And the thing about Job, what I love about him is that in the very end, he trusted the sovereignty of God. And he said, you know what? Though God kills me, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to trust him. I don't think that's, that's a bad thing to live by. I think that it's a good thing to live by. And also, I think this. I think that Jesus spoke one day to a crowd of people, and he, he, he went deeper. I mean, when he said in the sixth chapter of John, he said, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't do that, you have no part in me. And so half the congregation left. I can imagine the debrief meeting after that meeting. That Jesus, do you think Jesus went, went to his 12 and said, now, can we have a meeting here now? How was it? Uh, how was, was it life-giving? Did I, did I, you know, what, what, I, what I shared, what was, you know, did I wordsmith it just right? Did I use the proper, did, were my inflections just right when I said, eat my flesh and drink my blood? No, you know what he said? He looked at his 12 as soon as he saw people dispersing, and he said, how about you, leadership team? Are you going to leave also? And then Peter stands up and says, Jesus, we got nowhere to go. You're the one. You've got the words of eternal life. We're lost without you. I'm telling you, we're lost without Jesus. J.L. Packard, a theologian, said this. He said, our speculations, our theories are not the measure of our God. So then Paul just begins to double down a little bit more to show the church more examples of God's sovereignty in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, Old Testament prophet book, those who were not my people, the Gentiles will be called my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And then in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, become faith people. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Just examples of God his foreknowledge of his sovereignty, of saving people, of keeping people, of calling people that were not his people, their people. God can do that. You know, some people you know, you think they'll never be a believer, you think they'll never be a Christian, but then God calls them, God gets on them, God's beginning to work with them. Next thing you know, they're living for God. Next thing you know, their life is so shining that your little light is barely flickering. And they're on fire for God. And next thing you know, man, God's using them. God's sovereign, folks. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's what we're saying. He said, yeah, they did. 
And we've taught you that. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Remember, no one can be saved, be made right in God's eyes, be justified by the keeping of a law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. That was the problem with Israel. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were, it was based on works. They were pursuing God by doing works, and you know you can't do that, reach God by doing works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. He quotes Isaiah 8, 14. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Did you know that Jesus is the rock of offense? That it is so simplistic that millions of people are stumbling over Christ. To tell people that you simply, and we'll, we'll learn this next week, that simply you need to believe with all of your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died for your sins and rose again and that you will be saved. You see, in the human mind, that is too simple. It's too easy. Give me a list to do. Make it hard for me. You, you know what it should be? It should be easy to go to heaven and hard to go to hell. God's really and truly, when you think about it, we've got it made compared to the Old Testament saints. When's the last time you had to kill a bull to cover your sin? I mean, think about it, folks. We have the Christ, the Lamb of God, who died for our sins, but yet people stumble over it continually. Luke chapter 20, I don't have it on the, on, the, on the screen for you, but it says, Jesus said that it is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. Christ is the stone. When we fall in humility on him, we're broken. But watch. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. See, we have a choice. We can fall on the rock of Christ, receive it by faith, or we can let the rock fall on us in judgment. Reminds me of a story. There was a very, very wealthy man who had a son, and this son went off to war. We were in war at that time, and he became very close friends with another guy in his unit, and he saved this young man's life, the, the son of the rich man. He saved this young man's life in battle. And, and so in order to commemorate it, the, the young man painted a picture of his hero. But his hero died while doing it. And so after the war was over, he brought the painting to his, to, to the son's father, gave it to him. Later on in life, the father died. He was a very, very wealthy man. And so he had left a will and it was going to be an estate sale and people from all over the nation came because there were valuable items there. And so it was the day of the auction. The auctioneer stands in, in the pulpit there and he, he opens the auction up with that painting. Well, it wasn't a very professional painting. Matter of fact, it was not professional at all. It was not that good to look at. And, and no one would bid on it. And, and he waited. And, and finally, the crowd, all these elite people, began to get a little upset. They had canceled meetings. They had come from across the nation. They were ready to buy the, the 
powerful stuff, the, the expensive, where is it? Well, look, so finally, you know, he says, I want to open up the bids. No one would bid. So finally, a man in the back said, I, I, $10. I got $10. This is a regular guy, $10. And so he slams the gavel on the tabletop and says, sold to the man in the green shirt for $10. And as soon as that transaction is done, he slams the gavel down again. He says, the auction is closed. And of course, everyone was upset. What do you mean at questioning? And you know, there was an upheaval in there. And then he brings out the will and he said, the wishes of the man was that whoever purchased the picture of his beloved son was to receive everything that the estate had. And that just reminds me of Jesus. Did you know that when you receive Jesus, the kingdom of God comes to live inside of you? I just don't, I don't know if we grasp that. I'm not sure that we understand that the kingdom of God abides within the person of faith, the Christian. Everything that God has belongs to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think we should come to God today reserving anything. I, 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 don't, I don't place any stipulations on God. I've lived long enough to realize that God is in control no matter what I think, no matter what I believe, no matter what I believe should or should not happen, or how things should be done. But this one thing I do know, that when you commit and surrender your life completely to Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit becomes resident in your life. And the, the commands and the principles of God become a delight to you rather than some kind of job that you have to keep. And I know this, this I do know about the will of God. I know that it is the will of God that every person repents and receives the sacrifice of Jesus so that their sins can be forgiven and removed. And that is by far the greatest thing that any individual ever can receive. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment because this is such a time of decision for those of you who have committed to Christ and for those of you who are at a place of decision. I will say this for you, for everyone in the room, that a Christian is saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus not by anything you've done or who you are, and so it makes you no better. Only Christ makes better. We're all on the same level playing field. We need Jesus. If you're in this room right now and you've never committed your life to Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. You need to examine your heart, your life. Nobody else can do this. No one can do this for you. No one can make you do it. 
You just need to look into your heart. And if you realize that you don't know the Lord, that you don't have assurance of eternal life, that you've never been born again of God's Spirit, that you've never, ever committed fully to Jesus, now's the time to do that. The door is open. God is saying, come. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if your heart is being moved and you want to commit to Jesus, you can say your own prayer. You can talk like I talk. You can just agree in your heart because God sees you. Matter of fact, he saw you before the worlds were formed. Father, just say these words like this. Father in heaven, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he was perfect, that he rose again from the dead, that he lives And I realize that I'm a sinner separated from God. And I ask you, Lord God, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I surrender my life completely to you. I thank you, Lord God, for doing that for me, for saving my soul today in the name of Jesus. Now just hold hold yourself right there for just one moment. Because church, there's one thing that we want to agree about today. We want to agree that we will embrace the sovereignty of God and that we will trust him no matter what happens in our life. No matter what he allows into our life, we're going to trust him and stay faithful to him, relying upon his grace that is always sufficient. Let's pray together, church. Let's believe God. Come on now. Some of you in difficult situations right now. Father, we thank you that your grace is always sufficient and that you care about us. You love us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that we come out on the other end victorious because Jesus has won the victory for us. We thank you, Lord God, that in every season of our life, you are more than enough for us. You're able, Lord, to keep those who have committed to you to the uttermost, to the very end, Lord God. We're not going to run and hide. We're not going to doubt ourselves out of your grace. But we're going to embrace you, Lord God, thanking you for total victory completely when it's all said and done. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on now. Isn't God good? Northwood Church is one church with multiple locations. Uh, We have locations in Gulfport, Wiggins, and Long Beach, and we'd love to see you there. If you enjoyed this message and want to get more info on who we are, just head over to northwood.tv. And once you're there, you can check out all our past sermons and all the things that we're doing in South Mississippi. And even to, to give to support those efforts of reaching more people, be sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with everything happening around Northwood Church. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you soon.